You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. The headlines are killing me. This may be the worst Trump scandal yet, Washington Post. Impeachment becoming more and more likely, Politico. Primary challenger and former GOP governor William Weld accuses Trump of committing treason, quote, pure and simple, The Hill. Nancy Pelosi remains against impeachment despite reports, Vox, of treason, despite reports of treason. And then there are the still depressing, if not entirely Trump-related, but Trump will find a way to make it worse headlines like birds vanishing from North America, nearly 3 billion birds lost in last 50 years, CBS News. Still, not all the headlines are terrible. Warren leads a new Iowa poll, New York Times. That's good. I like that. You go, Elizabeth. And there were a lot of headlines like this over the weekend. Children Worldwide Unite in Global Climate Strike, CNN. That was good. That was really, really good. The news about the climate strike and images from it were truly inspiring. But not quite Restore Your Faith in Humanity inspiring. As Greta Thunberg herself pointed out in her speech at the United Nations on Monday, yesterday, the very need for the climate strike is a bad sign, an indictment of world leaders and our political and economic systems. It's inspiring to see children marching all over the world, but it is depressing to think that they need to. It's a headline that when you really start to think about it, makes you worry for humanity, doesn't restore your faith in humanity. But if you follow the news closely, like I do, there's always a headline that restores your faith in humanity. And I found mine in USA Today. Florida couple had sex in the back of a police car after arrests. Okay, there's nothing funnier, faith in humanity restoring about drunk driving. Drunk drivers kill people and never the right ones. But Megan Mundanaro and Seth Thomas weren't driving drunk at the time of their arrests. They were biking drunk. They were on bicycles, not motorcycles. So not technically a DUI, more of a BUI or a CUI, biking under the influence, cycling under the influence. So this Florida couple, and of course they're a Florida couple, this environmentally conscious Florida couple doing their part to cut greenhouse gas emissions by biking, they were really only a danger to themselves at the time the police spotted them biking erratically. They were, in fact, nearly hit by a car. So the cops pulled them over, smelled booze on them, placed them under arrest, put them in the back of a squad car, and when the cops were distracted impounding their bicycles, Megan and Seth seized the moment. Before the cops could react, Megan and Seth in the back of that cop car were naked and at it. All right, I love this story, and it was a tonic for two reasons. First, bragging rights. Megan and Seth will win, place, or show in every craziest place you've ever done it contest for the rest of their lives. Craziest place we've ever done it? Back of a squad car, under arrest. Top that, motherfucker. And second, well, I love this story because I love the resilience of the human libido. However bad it gets, even at the worst moments of our lives, even when we're sitting in the back of a squad car, under arrest for BUI, Desire finds a way. Sex finds a way. Desire and sex and a willing partner in crime have the power to make our day brighter. And if you and your partner in crime make headlines, 
It has the power to brighten the day of a depressed news junkie sex advice podcaster on the other side of the country. So thank you, Megan and Seth, for the epic reach around. It was just what I needed. Oh, and Nancy, if you're listening, impeach the motherfucker already. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. The show is twice as long for subscribers, and there are no ads. Michael Seligman of Mob Queens, a fascinating new podcast about an unexamined chapter in queer history, joins us to talk about the show. All right, speaking of shows, Savage Love Live is coming to Chicago, Madison, and Minneapolis this week, Thursday at the Music Box Theater in Chicago, Friday at the Barrymore Theater in Madison, Wisconsin, and Saturday night in Minneapolis, Minnesota at the Pantages Theater. Stormy Daniels will be joining me in Minneapolis. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events for more info and to get tickets. And now your calls. Hey, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old male married for five years to a wife that is 31. We have two kids, the younger being one and a half and the older being four. Me and my wife disagree on several minor things, but our only major issue is we have around two or three arguments a year that can turn into yelling matches, where we say some pretty mean shit with or without the kids in earshot, and I hate it. Though our marriage is mostly good, this isn't the whole issue. The truth is, is I got married very young after only knowing her for six months thinking it's what I wanted in life. I don't have much free time due to work and getting almost none to being in this full-time commitment to my family. And being so young, I feel like I'm missing out on many freedoms, not getting to do what I want when I want when I am off work. On the other hand, I'm capable of being a good husband and a great dad, and honestly, my marriage isn't that bad. It's just not the type of life I want to lead. I know this sounds selfish, but now I know I don't want this type of commitment, and I don't think I ever will. And this isn't some drive to be young and dumb. I still love my kids and want to be in their life. I just don't like the principle of marriage. It's like we're each other's legal property. And I don't want that control over someone or someone to have that control over me. I feel like I'm just waiting on the next big fight to say enough isn't. I've had this feeling for a while now, and I'm tired of being on the fence. Should I just man the fuck up and endure my commitment? Or should I follow my heart and work towards a divorce? I have a great relationship with my mother and father, and I feel like my kids are young enough now that the separation won't be as painful. But who knows if my marriage will stand the test of time with my feelings. Dan, what should I do? When there are young kids involved, I typically err on the side of staying together. But that's in the context of low-stress, low-conflict relationships where there is affection and there's a good partnership and the people enjoy each other and they enjoy parenting together and are able to acknowledge that perhaps the other things that they expected would be a part of the marriage, a strong romantic connection, affection, intimacy, sex, aren't there. But otherwise, if you can grieve those things and get past them and you can adjust your expectations so you're not always furiously angry that you aren't getting what you expected out of your marriage, that can work. And I sometimes encourage people in that circumstance to stay together. But if you're having knockdown, drag out, blow up fights three or four times a year where you say vicious things to your wife and she says vicious things to you in front of your young children, yeah, that's a high conflict, high stress relationship and probably one that needs to end. And if you know your own mind and it sounds like you know your own mind and it sounds like what you want, what you know yourself to want is out. So my hunch, my informed guess is that over time there will be more fights like this because consciously and subconsciously you want the fuck out of this relationship. 
And consciously or subconsciously, you're going to do everything in your power. And consciously or subconsciously, she knows it. She may want out too. And you or the both of you are going to sabotage the relationship and sabotage each other and have more and more of these fights in front of your children, which is going to harm them over time, do emotional damage to them over time, perhaps more emotional damage than will be inflicted on them by mom and dad working it the fuck out and divorcing and trying to have as amicable a partnership after the divorce as they possibly can. So yeah, you married too young. So did your wife. She was only 26 when you married. That seems pretty fucking young too. You were both young and dumb. You're grateful for those kids. You say you love your kids. I assume she loves those kids. Something good came out of this relationship. So it was good that you guys came together at the time in your life when you did. Otherwise, these two kids that you both adore would not exist. You should be able to come to some terms around that. Agree that good came from this, even if you two need to get the fuck away from each other for your sanity and for your kids' sanity. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am a 24-year-old listener in Chicago, and I am calling because I recently realized that I identify as being on the asexual spectrum. So, Sex has never, never really has been super pleasurable for me. I, you know, even oral or, you know, fingering or anything. I'm heterosexual, by the way. So I've had sex with men and I've had oral and PIV. And I just, I don't really enjoy it. I'm never really in the mood to do it. And I think that if I went the rest of my life without having sex, it would be fine. And I realize I don't experience sexual desire in the way that many other people do and that's okay. I'm I'm really okay with that. But issue is that I have been dating a guy for the past two years now, and he has a fairly high libido. And if it were up to him, we'd probably have sex every night. And I'm worried about telling him about this because while I wouldn't want, you know, I wouldn't necessarily be celibate with him, I would continue to have sex with him out of love and out of wanting to do something for him um i think it would hurt him if he found out that i don't experience sexual desire or sexual attraction really to anyone and i think he would feel really hurt by that part of me thinks i should just never tell him and continue on you know in the way we've been having sex which is not great for me but you know, great for him. And if basically all sex is going to be just not that great for me, then why don't I just keep on doing it and not really tell him about this? But I also don't want to lie to him because that's not a good foundation for a relationship. So I just wanted to see if you had any advice about how to tell a partner that you identify as asexual and, you know, ways you can let it know, let your partner know that you still love them and assure them that it's not their fault. Luckily for you, you're heterosexual. You could find a guy who didn't give a shit about whether or not you enjoyed sex or particularly wanted to have sex. There are, because I hear from their partners, lots of straight guys out there who treat their female partners like their fleshlights and aren't particularly invested in their pleasure or cognizant of a woman's ability to experience pleasure. And they just essentially jack off inside their female partners. You could find one of those guys. Those guys 
don't just make terrible sex partners. Those guys often make terrible partner partners. They're often terrible partners in every other partnering respect. So you might not want to settle for one of those guys. You might want to try to land a guy like the guy you've got, the guy who is interested in your pleasure, a guy who is interested in not just his desires, but in the desires of his partner. You know, for a lot of people, for good and decent people, for the kind of people most of us want to wind up in bed with, we don't just want to want them. We want them to want us too. Reactive desire is something a lot of people talk about. A lot of women experience reactive desire. Where what turns them on is to be desired by their partner, to be wanted. Well, a lot of men feel that way too. A lot of men want to be wanted, just like a lot of women want to be wanted. I don't think as many men have reactive desire, but it's not fun to have sex with somebody who could give a shit. It's not fun for most men, thank God, straight and gay, to have sex with someone and, and treat them like a fleshlight. Good people, people who are good at sex, people who are good at sexual intimacy, want to please their partner. They want to be pleased themselves. They want to take pleasure from, but they also want to give pleasure to, and they want the experience. They want sex to be mutually pleasurable, mutually desired. And as that is the case with most people who are sexual, I do think you have an obligation to disclose that you are asexual and that you do not experience sexual desire that you're willing to have sex to please someone else. But I don't think that you should have sex. I don't think that you should go through the motions to land someone else because the sex that you are having now, two years into this relationship, the sex that you are enduring these acts that are not pleasurable for you at all, but are tolerable. It's highly likely that over time, what you're doing right now, the sex that you're having, the motions that you're going through will become intolerable. And I think that your partner has a right to that information and has a right to make an informed choice about whether they want to be with you or not, or whether you guys are sexually compatible. And the only way to determine if you are sexually compatible with someone else is for that person to be honest with you about who they are sexually and for you to be honest with them about who you are sexually. There are lots of different ways to structure, organize a relationship. There are people out there who are asexual, who have committed long-term romantic relationships. They want committed long-term romantic relationships. Some of them are with other asexuals. Some of them are with sexuals, with sexual people who understand their partners are asexual, who understand that their partners are doing this for them and not deriving any pleasure from the act themselves and are not treating their partners like fleshlights, but they are doing for each other in that moment. They're allowing their partner to do for them and they're respectful and it is pleasurable to the extent that it's pleasurable. Perhaps the asexual partner derives some pleasure from giving pleasure, but no pleasure from the sex act itself. And then there are people who are sexual with asexual partners where they don't have sex inside the relationship, but the sexual person is allowed to have sex outside the relationship with other partners, perhaps with randos. So there's no threat to the emotional primacy of the relationship between the sexual and the asexual partner in the committed relationship. Perhaps they have concurrent romantic relationships I've met people in polyland at poly events where there is a committed couple or triad that involves one asexual person and the other person or the non-asexual people in that relationship have committed concurrent romantic relationships that are sexual with others. And it's those relationships, the committed concurrent romantic or sexual relationships with others that make it possible for the sexual person to be in the committed long-term romantic companion-ish relationship with their sexual partner, pardon me, with their asexual partner. So just telling him the truth, and I think he deserves the truth, doesn't mean you can't be with him over the long term. You're going to have to work something out. You're going to have to 
figure out what the accommodations are, whether the accommodations you're making him to go through the motions or the accommodations you make for him that allow him to seek sex with partners who desire him in a way that you can't and will never because he needs that too. In addition to the intimacy that he enjoys and benefits from in the relationship he has with you. But you got to be honest. You got to tell him who you are. You're not going to want to be telling him that you're asexual 15 years and two kids into this relationship when the sex that you are having with him in 15 years has gone from tolerable at two years to intolerable and you are just done at 15. That is the wrong time to tell someone that, oh, guess what? Surprise. I knew this all along. I'm asexual. He would be rightly angered to be told that at that time. So tell him now. Hey, how's it going, Dan? I'm a 20-something-year-old straight male living in California at the moment. I was over in England for my education, and while I was there, uh, I met this girl at a party, and we started hooking up. At the time, I was probably doing Molly like five, six days a week, drinking all the time, smoking weed way too heavily. Um, So it kind of really put a damp on, uh, I guess, my perception of things around me. So we hang out a couple of times. I end up hooking up with her again at her house. And um, after we have sex, uh, she asked me if I noticed her disability. Uh, and I'm kind of in a drug-induced stupor. And I said no. And she proceeds to pull out one of her hands, which only has two fingers on it. Now, this isn't a problem. I, I really didn't care. I honestly didn't notice. But I always thought this was just like kind of a one-night stand thing. So I left and never contacted her. But now that I'm a bit older, I feel like she may feel that the reason I didn't contact her was because of her disability. Whenever it was really, I was just looking for someone to kind of spend the night with. So I was wondering if it's something that I should maybe reach out. We're still Facebook friends and say, listen, I apologize. Or if it's just, you know, too little, too late. And she might have even thought of it the same way I did, you know, but any uh, advice would be great. I'm having a hard time putting myself in this woman's shoes and trying to figure out what would be worse hearing from you and being told that, Hey, it wasn't that you only had two fingers on one of your hands that I never saw you again. It was that I wasn't interested in seeing you again. Even if you had 20 fingers on one hand, I wasn't interested in seeing you again. I only wanted a one night thing. And so that's why you didn't hear from me again. It wasn't about your disability. So uh, don't blame your disability. Blame everything else about your personality or your looks because I wasn't interested in you. Fingers notwithstanding or lack of three fingers on one hand notwithstanding. So would that be the worst thing or would it be worse to always be attributing to my fingers or my lack of fingers to my disability, the disappearance of you and any other guy who only was interested in a one night stand? You say your friends on Facebook still, so you still have this connection to this person. How do they seem? How do they come across on Facebook? Are they upfront and out there about their disability? Do they hide it? Does it seem like a shameful secret? I guess not because she drew your attention to it in a kind of ballsy, confrontational, aggressive way in the moment. So it may not pain her to have a conversation all these years later when you're like, hey, it wasn't your hand, it was you. Or it was me. I was all strung out on drugs and was only interested in temporary connections. And I've kind of felt bad ever since. And are you then asking her for absolution? And is this about making you feel better? Or is it about making her feel better? Because the rejection wasn't about her disability. The rejection was about circumstance and the place you were at in your life. And 
PSA, the more you know, kids, please don't do Molly five or six times a week and get drunk all the time on Molly. Please don't mix ecstasy and alcohol. You could die and too much of a good thing is way too much of a thing. If you find a drug that you really enjoy, you should do it every once in a great while. Otherwise, you're going to ruin that drug for yourself. If you take ecstasy once and you have some sort of transcendent experience, if you take ecstasy five or six times a week, you're going to end up taking ecstasy just to feel like it's a fucking average Tuesday, then you're going to ruin ecstasy for yourself. If you like ecstasy that one time you did it, you should do ecstasy every few years, not every few hours. The more you know about making ecstasy still good for you all those years later, preserve and protect and defend ecstasy from it's more propensity to abuse it. Anyway, that's a long digression. I'm still wrestling with what to tell you, caller, about what to do here. I would leave it alone. I think you should leave it the fuck alone. You haven't heard from her, your Facebook friends. She's never asked. It's never come up. She obviously wasn't so pained by your disappearance that she felt like she had to reach out for an answer. If you get the sense from how she comports herself online that she's really struggling with her disability and how it impacts her relationships and you worry that she may have become more insecure over time and more shut down because of it and your perceived rejection, you know, your disappearance, which she may have attributed to her, to her disability, may have fed into that. You might want to then reach out and say, hey, it wasn't that. It was everything else. It was where I was. And it was what I wanted at the time, which was just a one night thing. And it wasn't a rejection of you based on your disability. And it might help her to hear that. Maybe you could say that. But again, I'm really, I'm really torn. I'm really struggling. And maybe I should kick this to my listeners out there who have disabilities. If you have a one night stand with someone and you never hear from them again, are you likely to attribute that kind of rejection to your disability? And it might help you to hear it wasn't tied to your disability. Or is that not a conversation that you need to have or would want to have? So I'm going to take the cop-out route here, and I'm going to kick this to any disabled callers who would like to call in with their POV. Hey, Dan. Uh, Long-time listener here. I've straight had part of a uh, – my partner is female. Uh, we are happily married. We're having a discussion um, about uh, our different sexual needs um, and kind of came across that for her, she needs to have an emotional connection um, during sex. Um, I also need that, uh, but I also every once in a while need something that is completely devoid of that. Um, and she's been awesome in allowing me to occasionally see masseuses, uh, go to strip clubs, that kind of a thing. Uh, we were recently discussing where the boundaries lie uh, in terms of what can happen. Would it be cool if I went to a swingers club or to a glory hole at a swingers club? And we kind of came to certain boundaries, specifically like stopping at oral play. Um, and she also requested that if I'm going to do these things, uh, that I, a wear a condom, which I'm totally cool with and B also go on prep. Um, and I want to put her mind at ease. Uh, and obviously like, I don't want her to be worried about anything, uh, as a result of my going and doing what I need to do and, and having fun in this way. Um, my, <laughs> my feeling is with prep. Uh, is just that I'm not quite sure if I need to do that. And I'm happy to do it to put her mind at ease, but she did ask me to call and see if 
you know, this is an unreasonable request. Because uh, my response was kind of like, well, if I'm wearing condoms, like the odds are more likely that I'll get hit by lightning and die. Um, she also wants me to let you know that one of the reasons she's worried about it is we're considering having kids soon. She wants to make sure that there's as small of a biological risk to our future children as possible. Are you sleeping with men? No, no, I'm not. Where are the glory holes with women on the other side? I've never heard of that. <laughs> um, you know, uh, typically if you look at like swingers clubs and that kind of thing, uh, you can find them. Ah. I live in a pretty large city. So like, okay, see, th- you know, these aren't like it's, dirty books to our public sex environments. This is a swingers club. It's men and women. And sometimes, you know, at that kind of a swingers club, there'll be, you know, a ramp with maybe some walls with some holes cut in it. But the understanding is that it is all opposite sex sexual contact going on in that environment. Yes. Generally speaking, I'm pretty sure that's how it works. At least that's how the people I've talked to who've been to one <laughs> um, are, are, are telling me. You know, I've never actually been to one. It's kind of a big fantasy of mine. Uh, and it's pretty awesome that she's into potentially letting me explore, you know, that. Um, but, but yeah, it, it would. as far as I know, it's a pretty controlled environment. It's not like... You know, okay. That's why. Yeah, no that's why I called you because if you, as a straight guy, knew where the glory holes were with women on the other side, the whole world was going <laughs> to not know about that. And of course, I should have figured you meant, <laughs> meant a swingers club where that could go on uh, outside of truck stops and dirty bookstores where women are not on the other side of the holes carved in the walls and the stalls. Guys, trust me. Okay, so going what? <laughs> going on prep does seem excessive. And that's not to stigmatize okay. same-sex sexual contact. It's just that HIV rates are much higher. The prevalence of HIV positive people much higher in you know, communities of men who have sex with men, period. That's just a fact. So if you were a bisexual right. guy and you were having outside sexual contact, even with condoms, particularly if you were one being penetrated, I would side with your wife and encourage you indeed to get on PrEP because the risk would be real. Condoms sometimes break. Some condoms sometimes leak. People who used condoms responsibly uh, every single time before PrEP came along would sometimes get infected yeah. because a condom would leak or break. And that was just an unavoidable risk. And PrEP has – for all intents and purposes, eliminated that risk. But if you're having oral sex and you're having PIV sex and you're wearing a condom, your chances of contracting HIV are nil. That was kind of my feeling. And look, like I want to do, I mean, she's being super awesome, you know, and, and very open-minded and we're kind of expanding the boundaries of relationship in wonderful ways. Um, and I want to do everything I can to make her comfortable I do also know that, like, you know, coming up in school, we were given a lot of scare tactics around, uh, scare tactics around SDIs, and I want to make sure that, like, the decision-making as we approach this is, like, you know, getting rid of all reasonable risks. But, like, uh, you know, to me, it's kind of like if that's what I was doing and I was running a condom, like, contracting any form of any form of SDI, really, you know, is it, it, kind of like getting hit by a bus and struck by a lightning. I wouldn't you know, like say that. I wouldn't say that. You know, yeah. even if you wear a condom, um, that doesn't provide protection, perfect protection. It provides some limited protection for the skin-to-skin sexually transmitted infections, herpes, HPV, that that risk right, right. isn't eliminated. And, and, you know, condoms sometimes fail. The risks aren't eliminated if you wear a condom for <laughs> syphilis, gonorrhea, HIV, and the original sexually transmitted infection, pregnancy. Not eliminated, <laughs> but minimized to a greater right. extent, particularly if you're using a condom correctly and effectively. Everybody, please go to Planned Parenthood. Read what they have to say about using a condom 
correctly. A lot of people put them on incorrectly. You know, when we talk about condoms leaking, it's because people will ejaculate, men will ejaculate or women will ejaculate if the woman has a penis. And then they will keep thrusting while they're wearing the condom that they've ejaculated into because their partner hasn't climaxed yet and their partner would like them to keep thrusting. And then that will force come back up through and out of the condom and potentially expose someone to interesting to the semen, which could then expose them to HIV, which is how a lot of people right. got infected okay. back in the day pre-prep. But if you are using condoms correctly and you're not doing that sort of thing, you don't have to worry for the most part. You know, the risks aren't 100% eliminated. I shouldn't have used the word nil earlier, but you are protected from syphilis, gonorrhea, and, 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 and chlamydia. And the protection that PrEP would give you in that circumstance, it's really overkill. It's protection for something that you're pretty much not at risk of contracting in that circumstance. Right. And so, yeah. you know, and PrEP, of course, as I hope everybody knows now, does not protect you from syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, herpes, HPV. PrEP protects you from HIV, period. And there's a lot of people out there who get on PrEP who think, woohoo, I'm safe now and I don't ever have to use a condom again. And that isn't true. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, and I, I know that, um, you know, it, it's just a matter of, I think that's the big one. Cause again, I just said in the car, we're thinking about having kids. And of course, like if you do contract uh, HIV or something like that, it's really, especially in this day and age with the treatments they have, it's, it's not the end of the, I mean, it's not ideal. It's not something you should shoot for, but it's not the end of the world. Like, you know, it, right. it's very treatable. And I think I just saw a thing like potentially becoming curable, which is great. Um, they've cured what they've know, cured two wanna... they've cured two people for all the efforts of the last forty years, uh, and the the process yeah. of, of the, the cure is very difficult and protracted, um, and not easily replicated. Right. Anybody who's out there who heard us talking about a cure for HIV, Google it, read the stories sorry, that have sorry, been written. Yeah, really... No, 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 no. I'm, like it's a part of the conversation, and you're right, it is a part of the conversation. It's a very hopeful sign, uh, and you know, in science and research, are diligently working on curing everyone, and fingers crossed, and I'll burst into tears the day that actually happens. We're not quite there yet. It's just that when you talk about mitigating your risks, you want to be rational about mitigating your risks. And, right. you know, using condoms religiously and correctly is going to mitigate the risks you're actually running, having opposite sex sex under the circumstances that you described. And going on prep would be overkill, I think. But if that's your wife's requirement, even if it is slightly irrational, if that's what she requires for you to have this permission, you may have to talk to your physician. You may have to do it to assuage her not entirely rational fears. You know, female to male transmission of HIV is a thing that has happened, is a thing that could happen. Right. It is highly yeah, unlikely, yeah. particularly if you are using a condom, even for oral sex. Okay. Yeah, and that that makes sense. Okay, cool. Thank you. And and that's kind of where I was coming at. Is that like maybe I just minded up doing it just because again she's being awesome and I want to make her feel as safe as possible on this. Um, you know. But I thank you for for the information that like yeah this, this is in terms of risks there are other risks to worry about long before this. Like this is probably not a risk or not or, or very 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 tiny. And, and how often and how yeah. impulsive do you plan to be? Like you going to a big swingers event to get your freak on? Is that something you would plan? Like, like six months in advance, or is that something on like a Friday night you would hear about it and head to? You know, I mean, the right now we're still kind of exploring that. I mean, like my my thought would be, is it like I don't know? Like I was a lot more promiscuous than she was in my younger life, and I think it's just kind of a holdover of like there's part of me that still really likes the sense of that, and so like 
I think that it wouldn't be very often, once every couple months, you know, okay, well, if that. You should also uh, talk to your doctor then. If, for your wife's peace of mind, you're going to wear a belt and suspenders and use condoms and get on prep, if you know that this is you know a party you're going to look forward to months in advance, that there's this event and some friends are going and you're going to go to, or you know, there's this big swingers retreat coming up and you'd like to go to that, um, they have found that prep is effective if you ramp up to it, if you start taking it a couple of weeks before you know you're going to be at, you know, on the gay cruise or whatever, that it is effective in those kinds of circumstances. So if you know, like, far in advance, it's not that you need to protect yourself because you could have, you know, sex at any moment with somebody else and for your wife's comfort, you need to be on prep constantly and always. But if this is, you know, once or twice a year, you go to a thing and you know you're going to go, then you could get a prescription, again, in consultation with your physician where you start taking the prep a couple of weeks in advance of that event. So at that event, the prep is in full force and you are protected from HIV at that event. And then you can go okay. off it when you get home and then you'd only need to be on it a couple of times a year. But again, talk to your physician. Okay. Okay. All right, cool. Good luck. That's, all right. Thank you, Dan. That's awesome. Appreciate it. Bye. Hello, Dan Savage and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a female Midwesterner. Um, and I'm in a relationship with my longtime partner, off and on partner of 30 years. We have been unable to get past a particular hurdle. And that hurdle is that he wants to have a mirror relationship. And when he says a mirror relationship, he means that he wants me to be his sexual equal. And he thinks that I use sex as a power play in the bedroom meaning I withhold it from him when I choose. And I try to get through to him that some days I just don't want to have sex and I like having sex when I want to have sex and not just for function or as like we used to say, you know, blowing your nose. That's what masturbating's for. And I just sometimes feel like a blow-up doll. And he thinks that if two people love each other, and are right for each other, then they should want to have sex with each other every day. And I fight back with him a little bit, or push back, not fight back, but push back about that because I feel like he's keeping track or keeping score or a tally, a tally mark up on the headboard, like how many times a day. You know, the thing is, is that it comes out in the wash. Some days I want to have sex four times, six times, or whatever, and the other days I might want to have sex zero times and he's just not okay with that he thinks that if I really really loved him and really wanted to be in a relationship with him then he I would want to be with him physically intimately like penis and vagina intimately every day please please can tell I we just can't seem to get past this this place and I, I want to have sex organically and naturally and not feel like it's got to be a check mark on the headboard help on again, off again relationship, you say? Well, I vote for off again. You shouldn't have sex more than you want to have sex. That's not withholding. That's your right to be sexual at the moments you wish to be sexual. He's essentially accusing you of manipulating him somehow, withholding sex from him for some reason that he didn't state. But what's actually going on is he's manipulating you with guilt trips into having sex at times when PIV sex, when you don't want to have 
PIV sex. And it doesn't sound like you never want to have PIV sex. Sometimes you want to have the sex that he wants to have four times in a day and it evens out. That's a relationship. That's a long-term sexual relationship. Two people are not always on the same page. This idea that there are mirror relationships where the two people in it are always in the same frame of mind, on the same page, wanting sex at the exact same time, those relationships do not exist. I don't know where he got that into his head. I've been running my mouth about sex and relationships for 30 years myself, on again, off again, but mostly on all the time. I've never heard that expression. I've never heard the term, the phrase mirror relationship. It's bullshit. He's making it up to manipulate you into being his sex doll, just like you said, into having sex whenever he wants it on his schedule. Yeah, no. Don't argue with him. Don't reason with him. Tell him it's off again and off permanently and forever. If he can't stop guilt tripping you like this, manipulating you like this with this bullshit, it is selfish. It is unloving. It is not what you want from a sexual partner. It's not what you deserve from a sexual partner. And you deserve better than this sexual partner. Hey, Dan. I'm a bi female in my late 20s living in California. I'm in an amazing open poly relationship with my girlfriend of one and a half years. Our relationship is great. I even have a friendship with her wife and a six-month-old baby. The only time things get sour is when, if I mention I have a date or want to see someone else. Our agreement is complete transparency. I'll ask her if she's okay with me to go out on a date or a hangout with a potential date so that she knows what's going on. Honestly, I would prefer to have a DADT agreement mainly because of how she acts every time I try to date. I tried for a little while to not date or see other people because it always results in a fight or an argument. Her reasoning is that I, quote, date my friends, and that doesn't sit well with her. I think that's because that's not how she likes to date, and I do. I like to befriend someone before knowing if I'd want to take the next level with them or not. She also has a big fear of me leaving her for someone else. I reassured her multiple times that I won't leave her and I just want to casually date and that I'm not seeking a secondary LTR. She is my primary and I am her secondary. And as she stated in the past, in her perfect world, she would date her and her wife and we would not date anybody else. But I've expressed multiple times that that's not what I want. I've wanted to call you so many times with this exact issue before, but I try to talk to her first and we try to work it out but I'm running out of options. I love my relationship with my girlfriend, but I'm tired of always getting caught in this trap of giving her anxiety, making her feel nauseous when, or making me feel bad when I want to go see for someone else. For example, her saying things like, why are you going to his house after blank if you were already complaining about being tired? Ever since we started dating, I have not been sexual with anyone else aside from kissing on a date. But far down the road, I would like to be but I can't even try to date without giving her massive anxiety. And I don't want to imagine trying to do anything beyond that. I don't want to be a monogamous. I don't want to give up my raising relationship, but I can't keep going in circles over and over again. I need some help because I feel like I've tried almost everything. Please help Dan. When someone pushes you constantly into reassuring them that you would never break up with them, you know what you need to say every once in a while? I might break up with you. You might break up with me. You don't want to feel like you've doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on these reassurances that I would never possibly leave you. I'll never leave you. Often when people are insecure about their relationships, they demand this from their partner and their partners give it to them over and over and over again. And then when the time comes 
that you really need to end the relationship, you hesitate because you don't want to be a liar. You don't want to feel self-conscious about all those times you reassured your partner at their insistence to keep the peace that you would never leave them and never break up with them. You can say to someone, I don't think I would bre- – I don't want to break up with you. I hope we never break up. But it is a bad idea generally to reassure someone that you would never leave them because you might then hesitate to leave them when you need to. You don't need help. You need to push. You need to push to – Do what I think you know you need to do, which is end this fucking relationship. You are not out of options. You can break up and you should break up with your girlfriend of one year because you don't want what she wants and she doesn't want what you want, which means even if you have a great sexual connection relationship-wise, you two are incompatible. She has told you that what she wants and she is going to pressure and guilt you into giving it to her is – An exclusive relationship, just you and her wife, a closed triad. You are not interested in that relationship model. You don't want to be monogamous. Over the last year, you have been monogamous. She has successfully manipulated you through drama and tears and guilt trips and anxiety and pressure into the monogamous relationship that you said that you don't want to be in. You have one card to play here, which is leaving saying, I'm sorry. I love you. We had a great time. It was a great connection. The year I spent with you, I learned a lot about myself, but it's over. And one of the things you learned about yourself with this woman is not to put up with this kind of shit in the future. Make it clear to anyone else that you date. You're not monogamous, polyamorous, and you're demisexual, which means that the other people you have sex with, you have to get to know them first. And you're going to have relationships with other people. And if they're not interested in that, then they're not interested in you. And you shouldn't be interested in them. Hey, Dan and Nancy and the tech savvy at risk kids. I have been exploring my sexuality this year. I am a 28 year old bisexual woman living in California. And um, I noticed I have this really specific kink for, I guess, like domesticity I really have this fantasy, um, specifically when I'm dating men, for like cooking for them and cleaning and um, then like pleasuring them sexually afterwards. So I guess I'm just kind of wondering, like, is there a name for this? Are there other people that are into this specific kink? I guess it would be kind of like a flavor of S&M. But I just feel like S&M is such a like catch-all term and there are so many things underneath it. So I'm just kind of wondering if there are communities around this or other people that I can talk to that are also into this kink. Yours is not an unheard of kink. It's a relatively common and low bar when it comes to gear and accessories version of not quite power exchange, but dom-sub, sometimes called head of household, sometimes called domestic discipline, sometimes called 1950s housewife style Domination and submission, where the woman cooks and cleans, and man, head of household, I guess, eats and makes messes. Sometimes in domestic discipline, spanking is incorporated if the wife or the sub makes a mistake with the meal, burns the casserole or whatever the fuck. She may get a spanking from the head of household, from her dominant husband. She may be domestically disciplined. It is a real thing. It's an actual kind of DS power exchange, erotization 
of what many women were trapped in and many women feared. I always think when it comes to kinks, particularly power kinks, and almost all kinks are power kinks, it's an eroticization of a fear. And the role that you now fantasize about entering into of your own free will, of occupying, is the role that women were condemned to for centuries and had no choice about playing. And now you get to play with it. Now you get to adopt this role in service of a man that you want to service, that it turns you on to service in this way. And that is, I think, infinitely preferable to when all women were condemned, whether they liked it or not, enjoyed it or not, got off on it or not, to this kind of quote-unquote domestic discipline. So look around out there, head of household, 1950s housewife kink, domestic discipline, and you will find your people. Hey, Dan. So my girlfriend and I, we've been together for five, six months now. She loves to use her vibrator when we are playing together, which is very fun. She complains that her vibrator not that good. And, uh, well, I wanted to surprise with one, getting one for her. I'm not sure which one will be the best, something that we can use, something that she will really enjoy while we play together. So I'm kind of like asking you or open it up to like everybody else out there to see if they can give me suggestions on what will be the best vibrator that I can get my girlfriend as a gift, you know, surprise. But we can both enjoy it and, you know, we can help her reach that orgasm that she always likes to get. You can't go wrong with a powerful wand vibrator, sort of the Cadillac GM of vibrators, the Hitachi magic wand. You can get one that plugs into the wall if there's an outlet near enough the bed, or you can get a battery-powered one. And there are different kinds of sort of Hitachi magic wand style vibrators out there. But the best vibrator would be the one that your girlfriend picks out with you on a visit to a woman-owned sex-positive sex toy store where she can hold one in her hand, where she can test it against herself, where she can make the choice. You're still giving it to her as a gift. You're still taking her out. You're still buying it for her. If there's not a woman-owned sex-positive sex toy shop anywhere near you, get online, visit one, Smitten Kitten, She bought the Shop, Grand Opening. There are lots of woman-owned sex toy shops out there that have an online presence and you can shop for one together. You won't be able to hold it in your hand. She won't be able to hold it in her hand. She won't be able to test it out against her wrist. But you should still let her have a little agency and choice when you're picking out her next vibrator, not for her, but with her. Dear Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth, I'm calling from Canada on behalf of my friend who is struggling with a wedding problem. My friend, will call her Samantha, is 27, just became a doctor, and wants to start a family in the traditional sense. All her friends are getting married. She went to literally eight weddings this summer, so needless to say, she's anxiously waiting for her boyfriend, we'll call him Dale, to pop the question. They've been together for eight years. They do want marriage and children, but apparently he just doesn't feel ready. He's somewhat open to discussing her anxiety with her, but feels pressured by the prospect and so shuts down the conversation pretty quickly. Samantha is hurting because of this, and while she has enough on her plate with the medical practice, she can't help but feel like she's losing time. She's ready to start a family and wants to celebrate their love, and Dale is giving no indication of when that might happen, but says he does want this future with her. Should she stick it out until 30? How can she feel assured that she is with the right guy? Should they go to therapy if he's having trouble discussing it and she's suffering? 
How do you cultivate patience while being clear about your needs? I wasn't sure what to tell her. Where I live, no one gets married, but they do make babies like it's their job. I did tell her I'd ask you. You've helped my dad in the 80s, and now us millennials, your wisdom is ageless, Dan. Thank you for all that you do. Did I blow your dad in the 80s or something? Because I didn't have an advice column or an advice podcast in the 80s. So if I helped your dad out in the 80s, it must have been in person, face-to-face or face-to-crotch. All right, let's talk about Samantha. Look, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if her boyfriend of eight years, this person that she's been with since she was a teenager, doesn't want to marry her yet or now, he's never going to want to marry her ever. The reason he shuts down this conversation, Samantha should assume the reason that he shuts down this conversation is that he doesn't want to tell her what she obviously doesn't want to hear, which is that he doesn't want the same things that she wants. He doesn't want marriage. He doesn't want to start a family. Not now and probably not ever, at least not with her. So why is he still in the relationship? Inertia is a powerful force. These are the assumptions that I think Samantha has to operate under. He knows that she is ready to marry. There is nothing that's stopping her in this cultural moment from proposing to him. She doesn't have to sit there on the couch or on the settee with her hands folded in her lap, waiting for him to pop the question for the next two years until she's 30. And then at 30, she becomes an adult woman with agency and she can make her own fucking decisions and asks, she can ask him now. She can put the question to him now. Look, do you want to marry me? I'm proposing to you. I'm proposing that we marry. And then he has to say yes or no, not I want to talk about it later. And he doesn't get to play magic eight ball with the response. Ask again later. No, she needs a yes or no answer from him. And at eight years, I think she has a right to know what that answer is. And I suspect the answer is no. And I think you know it. And I think your friend Samantha knows it. And dragging his ass to a therapist isn't going to change anything. All Samantha needs to determine is whether he wants what she wants. She has a time frame. She would like to marry fucking now and start having kids now in her late 20s with the person she's been with for eight years. Not an unreasonable want. If they're not the things that he wants now, they're unlikely to be the things he wants ever. And it's better for Samantha to know that now by forcing the question, by popping the question herself, than to wait around another 16 months, two years, hoping he's going to ask. Because what happens at 30 when he still hasn't asked? Then she's going to have to ask then. No, ask now. Don't wait. Don't wait another two fucking years. And if marriage and kids aren't what he wants, and Samantha wants those things more than she wants this guy, then what you have there is a premarital irreconcilable difference and a reason to pull the plug on what has been perhaps a lovely relationship and the right relationship and even a successful relationship for Samantha and her soon-to-be ex-boyfriend in their 20s, but not the partners either of them needs going into their 30s. Hi, Dan. I am a woman in my mid-30s based in the UK. A couple of years ago, I had a broken engagement. My ex-fiancé later said that he proposed to me to see if he loved me or not. So, you know, classy guy. Um, Since then, I've dated a couple of people, but nothing serious. And uh, with everything that's happened, I 
have been diagnosed with PTSD and that is to do with not only the broken engagement and having to move countries because I was living in another country, um, but also to do with a previous miscarriage and uh, a previous um, coercive and abusive relationship. So I am on uh, medication and I'm at the beginning of my therapy journey. And in general, I'm starting to feel a little bit better and less anxious. But the idea of being with somebody now that almost repulses me, you know, I've still got a fairly normal libido, which I can sort out myself. But the idea of letting someone into my life just fills me with horror. And it's never been like that for me before. And I'm not sure if this is just a temporary thing because of what I've gone through or if I'm just no longer cut out for relationships or what. I'm sure I'm just going to second what your therapist is telling you. Trust your gut. Listen to that little voice in your head or that message from your subconscious. When you contemplate initiating a new relationship, you are filled with horror, at least right now, which means at least right now, entering into a new relationship would be a bad idea. You're not ready to enter into a new relationship. Initiating a new relationship requires you to make yourself vulnerable. All new relationships require us to make ourselves vulnerable in front of a person who's really an unknown, untested quantity. We have to take a chance on this person. We have to, you know, fire up the bullshit detectors and using our best judgment and trusting our gut and the little voices in our head. We have to decide whether we're going to bungee jump into this new relationship. And only after you get into a relationship with someone do you determine whether they're a good and decent loving person and you made the right call, that your gut made the right call. And at least at the moment, the risk inherent in initiating a new relationship puts you off, shuts you down, fills you with horror and dread. So at least right now, that would be a bad move. Maybe that will change in time. You say you're on meds. You say you're speaking to a therapist. You say you've been diagnosed with PTSD. Hopefully, having a label for your trauma, hopefully having the meds that you need, hopefully having the talk soup therapy that you need will get you to a place not where you feel there are no inherent risks, not where you, when you meet somebody and you're thinking about maybe dating them, where there are no fears or no qualms because there will always be those fears and qualms because you can't really know whether someone is a good and decent person who's right for you until you start into that relationship. You can't do your due diligence about someone until you're actually with someone. Now, maybe there's a pattern in your early relationships. Maybe you rushed to commit. Maybe you moved in too soon and then extricating yourself from the relationship was an emotional or logistical hassle or nightmare and so you hesitated and you sailed on in the relationships trying to repair them because the alternative, leaving someone that you were sharing a lease with or leaving someone that you're engaged to felt like such a big deal that you got kind of trapped in the relationship sunk cost fallacy where I had already invested so much and I'm just going to keep investing more in the hopes that this relationship, which is not making me happy right now, can become the kind of relationship that I want. It can become the relationship that makes me happy. And if indeed – and I'm just speculating here. and If indeed that was a pattern, the rush to commit early – don't repeat that pattern. 
You have your own place. You live alone now. The next time you meet someone and you want to date them, something that may help with this horror and dread is not creating too much dependency on that person early in the relationship, which can be as simple as keep your own fucking apartment. Date and spend time at their apartment and they can spend time at your apartment and don't move in with each other for at least a couple of years so that if 16 months into it you decide this person isn't right for you or you're detecting red flags at 16 months that love blinded you to at six months or at six weeks, it's an easy thing, an easier thing. It's never an easy thing to end a relationship, but an easier thing to end the relationship because it doesn't require returning a ring and it doesn't require moving out. It just requires letting them know and blocking their numbers. One of the things we heard a lot about in the run-up to the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, that is the event credited with kicking off the modern LGBT civil rights movement, was that back in the bad old days, pre-Stonewall and perhaps briefly post-Stonewall, the mob ran New York City's gay bars. The new podcast, Mob Queens, written and hosted by Jessica Bendinger and Michael Seligman, tells the story of Anna Genovese, a mob wife. She was a second wife of Vito Genovese, a pivotal figure in the mob, and she was a pivotal figure, surprisingly, in New York City's drag bar scene before Stonewall. Joining me to talk about Mob Queens by phone, Michael Seligman. Hey, Michael, how are you? Hey, I'm great, Dan. How are you? How's it going? Uh, it's going really well. I'm really enjoying the podcast and, and what I'm learning about something I thought I knew a lot about, which was New York City's drag scene and New York City's sort of history of gay nightlife, even pre-Stonewall. Uh, but obviously, I didn't know as much as you and Jessica. How did you guys first hear about Anna Genovese and why were you attracted to telling her story? Well, you know, we first started um, a, a few years ago. A friend of mine, Craig Olson, had uh, discovered this box of letters in a storage unit. And the letters were written by a group of New York City drag queens in the 1950s. And, you know, I worked in TV for a long time as a research producer and, um, you know, immediately put on my research hat and just started kind of digging around New York City, Google search, you know, New York City, 1950s drag queens. And it was just like a lot of stuff about RuPaul's Drag Race kept coming up. But then <laughs> down buried beneath, below was this thing about a place called Club 82. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Well, what's, what's this about? And then we found Anna Genovese and then discovered her story. And as somebody who is obsessed with history and, you know, grew up, you know, gay and just didn't have any story. There were no stories for me. So immediately I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is an incredible story. You know, can we find out more? And just started digging and digging and then actually finding people who were still alive, who could talk about that time period, former drag Queens who are now in their eighties and nineties who talk about being drag Queens in the fifties when drag was illegal and because it was illegal to serve alcohol to gay people, the Genovese crime family ran the entirety of gay nightlife in lower Manhattan for decades. And it was this kind of crazy symbiotic relationship. So, so how did Anna Genovese come to join the Genovese crime family? And how did she go from being, you know, a mob wife? And most mob wives aren't involved in the day-to-day -day operations of, of mob businesses like illegal gay bars and illegal drag bars. How did she go from mob wife to running the drag scene in New York City in the 50s? 
Well, I think that she was definitely a woman who was ahead of her time. She had a lot of intelligence. You know, she graduated high school at a young age, a few years before most kids do. She spoke five languages and she uh, had all this ambition. But, you know, in the 1920s and 30s, when she was a young woman, the best way to align yourself or to, uh, to, to get ahead was to align yourself with a powerful man. You know, the best way for a woman to, and, uh, you know, she, she and Vito were actually connected um, by family uh, before, you know, they, um, you know, before they got married. Um, but I, I think that she just, she had ambition. She had a lot of desire and, and, saw Vito as potentially a way to kind of get the things that she wanted. And I think because she was also somebody who was bisexual. So she was interested in a lot of this gay nightlife and gay culture. And at that time, Greenwich Village in the 20s was so gay. I mean, it's gayer than it is now. And there were more lesbian bars back then than there were gay bars. And so I think she was just kind of in the mix and was smart and ambitious and figured out a way that, hey, I can make money by doing these sort of semi-illicit things, i.e. running gay bars and drag bars. One of the interesting and darker places the show goes early in the first season is that Anna and Vito were both married to other people when they met. And conveniently, both of their spouses (laughs) came to not untimely ends, timely ends, that you guys believe they may have murdered both their spouses so they could be together? Possibly. You know, there's really no way of knowing. But if you look at the timeline, it does. It's a little suspect, you know. Um, I mean, Vito's first wife, um, Donata, was, you know, she did have tuberculosis and uh, you know, and she may have just died from tuberculosis. There's rumors that maybe her death was hurried a little bit. Um, it and was, then it was the pounding from inside husband. the casket during the funeral that made people wonder <laughs> if it hadn't been hurried along. Uh, yeah, but it, it, and then you know, as we've been trying to find out, you know, Anna was seeking a divorce from her first husband, Gerard. And um, and then he winds up murdered, and then she marries Vito two weeks after uh, after her first husband dies, and then has a baby a few months later. And Gerard was murdered in a Genovese crime family hit. That's not disputed. That is, yeah, that is the testimony of Joe Valachi, who is the mobster who came around in the 60s and kind of like, you know, sort of went on the record with all of these stories. And he said that was a hit that was called by Vito. Yeah. Now I read a story about you finding this, this, this package of letters that, that, that led you yeah. to Anna Genovese and her story. And, you know, when you think you know, that this time in New York where it was illegal to, to quote unquote cross dress, it was illegal for someone who is a, a man to a, be in public in women's clothing or someone who is, you know, biologically mm-hmm. female to be in public in men's clothing and people were literally arrested and gay bars were run by the mob because it was legal to serve alcohol to gay people. Um, what surprised you about these letters was that they were sort of shot through with a lot of unexpected joy that queer people, even in those dark pre stonewall decades we're enjoying themselves and queer people enjoying themselves. has always been a radical act. And you found evidence of that in these letters. Absolutely. Yeah. And that is the kind of myth that I 
grew up with, you know, that pre-Stonewall, everybody was miserable, alcoholic, in the closet, ashamed of who they are. And then you read these letters and then we, you know, talk to some of these queens who are now in their 80s and 90s. And they're like, we had the best time. They knew the edges of where they could kind of operate, you know, and they, and they pushed the limits as just as far as they possibly could, you know, without getting arrested, um, you know, but the joy that they had, the kind of buoyancy that you, you hear about in these stories and in these letters is they're well-adjusted. They know who they are. They're not hiding who they are, except in the place where maybe they could get in trouble, um, you know, and try to, you know, as best they could avoid going to prison. But, you know, they knew the problem was not them. The problem was the straight world that was unaccepting. And so they kind of felt to their limits and then and then pushed it as far as they could. But what's interesting about the drag queens that were performing at the 82 Club is they were like, hey, it's the 1950s. Everybody's doing some kind of drag. Everybody's hiding something. Everybody's trying to put on this respectable face. We're the only ones being honest about what we are. We're not saying we're women. We're, 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 we're doing drag and we're saying we're doing drag. So in a funny way, the drag queens and the drag kings were the only ones being honest about who they were. It's really a regular and recurring feature in queer life that, you know, there are these times when the culture is persecuting us and looks at us and goes, why aren't you miserable? You, we are working so hard to, to make you miserable. And there you mm-hmm. are having a blast. And for me personally, you, you know, and listening to these stories from these drag queens uh, in the show, yeah. for me personally, it just echoed with the, the AIDS epidemic in the 80s when we were dying and nobody yeah. cared and people were doing everything they could to to make it worse. And yet we were partying and having fun and, you know, going to demos, but then going to dances after the demos. And it pissed people on the right off that we had the temerity to still have fun mm-hmm. despite all of the hard work that they were doing to make us miserable. And that is so mm-hmm. – and it just kind of made me feel really connected to these queens in the 50s that you guys talk about on the show. Oh, my God. Wait until you start hearing them in some upcoming episodes. You are going to fall in love. I mean, they are still, you know, like I say, in their 80s and 90s and so full of life. And so, you know, I think that there is a desire by the right or maybe even just mainstream culture to kind of paint queer people as victims, as, you know, people who have had to suffer. And certainly we have had to suffer. But um, but we find the joy in life. We find the ways that we can celebrate the small victories, just the, the love and the kindness. And, um, you know, it's just so thrilling to be able to rescue this history from, you know, right before it was just sort of destined for the trash bins. And, you know, these people that are that are telling the story now aren't going to be alive, you know, um, much longer. Um, and so to be able to 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 talk to them and and get this sense, you know, because we, you know, I'm 50 and, 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 you know, the people I should have been learning my queer history from all died, you know, Mm -hmm. I didn't get that opportunity. So now we've gone to like another generation previous and, and been able to kind of rescue these stories and tell this history and it's fun and it's exciting. And it's, it's, it's not just like, Oh, we were all a bunch of angels. Like, yeah, we were doing, we were in the mob. We were running, illegal bars. We were doing all this kind of stuff. Like it's just this full, full picture of what it meant to be a queer person in in the years before Stonewall. And I can tell you pride did not begin at Stonewall. Pride was around long before. 
You've written for TV and you're a producer. You've producer on RuPaul's Drag Race. You've made true crime specials for e-television. Jessica wrote Bring It On and other films. Why yeah. a podcast? Why are you telling the story on a podcast? Why isn't this on television? Oh, you know, we actually developed this as a TV series a few years ago and, and, and pitched it around. And, and this was, you know, probably 2015, 2016. This was before Time's Up and Me Too and this whole kind of shift in Hollywood to be more inclusive. Um, but we pitched it around and it was just like, oh, yeah, you know, female driven dramas. That's hard. Oh, period pieces. Oh, those are hard. Yeah. LGBT storylines. Yeah. Good luck with that. Nobody's going to be interested in that, you know, and then kind of we wait, had this shift a couple a years second. ago. In a world where people can't get enough of RuPaul's Drag Race, in a world where Drag Race is being franchised off to other countries to run their own Drag Race yeah, empires. Right. You went and pitched this to Hollywood TV execs are like, yeah nobody's really interested in the mob how many movies have we sat through from the mob <laughs> and no one's interested in drag but how could they say that to you with a straight face with a literally straight face the they said that to you point of view. with a literal it, it is a literal straight face that that was said exactly but um yeah i think that it was just in terms of you know like how are we going to sell this how are we gonna, you know america's not ready for this and by the way at the time you know rupaul's drag race was still on logo it wasn't winning Emmys, you know, it was still this kind of underground thing, you know, it's just last year, I think, uh, it's the first time that the show won, um, you know, best uh, reality show and it had been on the air for 10 years, you know? And so I think that there's been this culture shift and, you know, people like Ryan Murphy doing pose, like now people are starting to see, okay. And this kind of queer entertainment equals dollars. And well, I think in Hollywood, that's really what it's all about. Well, well this story, you know, the mob wife who may have, you know, called in a hit on her own first husband so she could marry <laughs> into the Genovese family and it being <laughs> sort of welded to the drag scene in New York City in the 50s. Yeah. You know, maybe pitching it a yeah. few years ago was the wrong moment, but the podcast itself is is so cinematic, although, you know, a lot of it follows yours and Jessica's efforts at, you know, uncovering the story and, and peeling it back. It's that, yeah. it's that thing that the podcast genre does so well, where you go with the the reporters on this mission of discovery uh as it happens as they pick the story apart you are there for the revelations you are there for the unearthings of documents and you know dusty old archives Uh, but listening to it you know maybe the podcast is the thing that maybe the podcast is the pitch that's going to get this the you know fictional recreation or the, you know, the narrative recreation on television. Yeah. Yeah. Well, from your lips to God's ears, that would be the best thing. And, and, you know, I believe that everything kind of with this project has unfolded. So, you know, not to be too woo woo spiritual, but I do believe that there's like this sort of divine hand that has been guiding this because we've had so much luck and so much, you know, good fortune along the way. And, um, you know, I, 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 I think that the podcast allowed us to be able to tell all the, all the parts of the story um, in our own way and in our own voices with all our excitement. And, you know, I think that if there is a, something that comes out of that, you know, it'll, it'll probably be a, a you know, fictionalized version of, of those things, but at least we got to tell this story in, in our way. And so I, I'm kind of glad that it shook out the way that it did because it also forced us to kind of dig deeper, you know, to, um, to really develop the story. And we're, we're finding stuff out right now. I mean, we still have a handful of episodes left to go and we are still making discoveries. That's uh, pretty exciting. 
Mob Queens is produced by Stitcher, hosted by Michael Seligman and Jessica Bendinger. It is fascinating. Anna Genovese's story was a story that needed to be told, and I'm so glad you guys are telling it, and I'm just really enjoying the podcast. And thank you for coming on mine uh, to talk thanks, about it. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hi, Dan. I hooked up with a guy recently that I met on Tinder, and we had a lot of fun, kinky sex. And uh, at the end, he came on my chest because I asked him to, and then he, and he licked it off. And I realized in that moment, I've, I've never, like, I'd never experienced a guy doing that. And it was sort of a surprise. And I thought it was like really sexy and delightful. And it was sort of like, oh yeah, this is super hot. And so I was talking up some friends and like, I told this story and, you know, like I love sexual novelty. So I was describing it. And when I got to that part, I definitely gauged from uh, these women that I was talking to a certain level of like, oh, like, oh, really? And not just like surprise, but that like kind of like a certain amount of squickiness, which I don't know, I consider these folks to be very sex positive. And also, I didn't really think of all of the kinky stuff I had described us doing. That was the most like, wow, shocker. Um, And so there was a part of me that kind of, you know, thought like, oh, well, maybe some of that is a little bit of like, internalized or just like not internalized, but just homophobia, right? Of like, I think women can still be really biphobic and homophobic when it comes to men and the idea of a man, I don't know, tasting any semen or cum is just like, can squick them out, which kind of sucks. But then I told that story to a a gay guy friend of mine and he also was like, Oh, mm, I think, I think that's kind of weird, which I know this might be an isolated personal opinion, but I guess I was just sort of feeling like, well, if someone is like really into sucking cock and like swallowing other people's cum and having them swallow yours, like what, what's squicky about that? Um, And I'm sort of just wondering, like, is that a common taboo for like someone tasting their own cum to be sort of shocking? And is it, is it gendered? Cause I don't know. I feel like when I've had sex and I've like, put my hands on my pussy and then like licked my cum off my fingers. It feels really sexy. It feels really good to me. It's received as really, really sexy. Um, And I know that like pussy is different and in my experience, a little lighter of a flavor than cum, but I don't know. How much of that taboo do you think relates to any kind of homophobia or how much of it do you think relates to just a a weird fear around onanism? Because I guess I kind of feel like if you're, tasting your own cum there's a certain like logic there of like hey don't you know taste it before you serve it kind of thing but maybe that's just me and i'm overly comfortable with the way i taste i don't know both of these things can be true that the women you shared this story with were squicked out because of their biphobia or their homophobia i hear all the time from women who are concerned that their boyfriends or their husbands might be gay because of X, Y, and Z, because they like to have their nipples played with, because they like to have their butts touched, because they go to the gym, because they like musical theater, because they ate their own cum. I've also heard from guys who grew up in very conservative and religious households where any evidence that they were masturbating would be used against them in a court of mom and dad. And so they destroyed the evidence as they masturbated all through their teen years, which meant eating their own cum. And some of those guys have told me that they developed kind of a taste for it. And it became an important sort of sense memory association with orgasm was then the ingesting of the 
semen aspect of it. So moms and dads, if you don't want your sons to grow up to be cum-eating straight guys, uh, don't blow up at them about the crusty t-shirt or crusty sock. Just throw it in the laundry. And of course, some people are just turned on by their own taste, by their own juices, or by the naughtiness of it. This guy was having kinky sex with you, and maybe he was just performing for you and thought it was hot, and you thought it was hot. So Yahtzee, he won. He, he made the right choice. He rolled the dice and moved his mice, and there you were, getting off on what he was showing you he was capable of and comfortable with. So that can be true. Women can be biphobic. Women can be homophobic. Your friends could be squicked out by this because they're the kind of women who consciously or not, subconsciously perhaps, are looking for evidence that guys who are into them are faking it and are really secretly gay and they're going to have to send me letters because they have the soundtrack for Cabaret on their phone and they ate their cum once when they were a kid. It can also be true, simultaneously true, that a gay guy could hear that story and be a little squicked out. Men come, a man has an orgasm, a male has an orgasm, and then he goes crashing into his refractory period. A woman has an orgasm and is still aroused, still capable of having another orgasm. Women are potentially sexually insatiable, which is, I think, one of the reasons men are, straight guys are often terrified of female sexuality and feel inadequate in the face of it because there's only one that you can have and if you're with a woman who is orgasmic, there is any number that she could have. More than you could possibly ever provide for her. But guys, anyway, I'm getting far afield. Guys have their one orgasm and crash into their refractory period. Hormones are released into the body that really flip a switch in most guys. There are some guys who have no refractory period. That's that time when the guy loses his erection and loses also all interest in Sex and things that a second ago were turning them on, like the thought of eating cum, like the thought of eating ass, like the thought of eating pussy, like the thought of basically drinking some other human being's saliva by the bucket. Those things that a second ago were very arousing are now a turnoff. The, 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 the disgust thing creeps back in. And so your gay friend, your gay male friend, hearing about a guy who ate his cum right after he ejaculated is probably projecting himself into that experience, into that scenario, and imagining himself in that moment, and he would be turned off at the thought of eating his own cum. I have been with plenty of guys who thought it was hot to eat their own cum or be forced to eat their own cum after they ejaculated before they ejaculated. The thought of being forced to eat their own cum after they came was a turn on. The moment they came, that thing that they were fantasizing about, even dirty talking about a moment before, the moment before they came, no longer a turn on for them. There are also, in my experience, lots of guys out there who are gay. And if you want to come in their mouth, you have to be careful that they haven't just come in yours or come first because they're not so into swallowing cum after they've come themselves and they are in their refractory period. And that switch has been flipped and things that aroused them a moment ago no longer aroused them. So your female friends maybe freaked out about what this could mean about this guy's sexuality and how it would make them uncomfortable because they would then be paranoid if they were with a guy who did this in front of them because they would worry that he was gay or bi and that wasn't okay with them. And your gay male friend projects himself into that moment and wrinkles his nose or recoils from the thought of it because he knows that in the moment, right after he comes and he's thrown into his refractory period, that he wouldn't be turned on eating his cum or probably anybody else's cum at that precise moment. 
All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Trash Love 3 tweets, love the caller on the Savage Lovecast this week, who is like, what is the unfathomable secret of clean anal sex? Word to the wise, anal douche bulb, lukewarm water, and shaking your ass to some tunes about 30 minutes before your partner comes over. K Carpenter 82 tweets at Fake Dan Savage went to a farm tour today and there was a late 30s woman complaining about her boyfriend. She kept saying he wasn't keeping his commitment since they were only together for six months. I roll. I calmly walked up and recommended she start listening to the Savage Lovecast. Thank you, Katie, and welcome, new listener. And Georgie Wolf tweets, episode 672 regarding the couple considering a threesome. For the love of God, people, please don't have a three-way with someone to try and fix your relationship problems. Nobody wants to be used. If you want hands-on couples therapy, pay a sex worker. All right, if you want us to read one of your tweets on a future episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. This is in response to the woman who felt like she had lost her sex drive after her mother-in-law had stayed with her for an extended period of time. And I just wanted to suggest that maybe she could just use some alone time. I personally have the ideal in-laws. They are fun and respectful and accepting. And I'm really, really grateful for my relationship with them. But whenever they come and stay with us for an extended period of time, I tend to find myself even subconsciously running out of energy just based on, you know, I want to impress them and make them feel like my their son is in a safe, great space with me. And so it takes a lot of extra socializing energy out of me. So... I tend to need a little bit of extra alone time after they leave, even from my husband. He and I both consider ourselves to be needy, but I have a hard time seeing to his needs immediately afterwards as well. So maybe it's not that you're skeezed out by him. Maybe it's just that anybody who has any kind of need from you is making you kind of push them away. So, you know, maybe just spend some time alone and then... Eventually, like Dan said, you know, get high and bone. Hey, Dan, I'm calling to respond to the caller in episode number 673, whose father was recently diagnosed with cancer. Um, I lost my dad a few years ago to cancer, and there isn't a day that goes by where I wish I couldn't just hang with him for like five more minutes. And I often think that I didn't do the right thing in spending as much time with him as I could have when I knew that he was sick. So, like, while I understand that the caller has major ideological issues with her father supporting Trump, I do too, um, I encourage her to realize that, like, Trump's not going to be in office in two years or six years. Um, but, but cancer is really vicious, and her dad might not be here in six months, let alone six years. So I just wanted to call to encourage her to really like have a deep look and make sure that she's not going to regret not being able to be a part of his life. Not everybody wins their battle against cancer. Um, so I, I hope that she considers it deeply and I wish them all the best of luck. Hi, I'm calling in response to the 25 year old young woman who called and is dating the 44 year old man. He has had 19 more years than you right now to do whatever he's wanted to do, make his own choices, live his life. She chose not to get married and have children. And now he is expecting you to make a different choice to do what he wants you to do. You 
get to live your life. He's 44, had all of his choices, and now he is, has shopped, gone shopping for a younger woman who is fertile and ready to do what he wants. But that's his life. You live your life as you said, nope, I'm not willing to give up my plans. Yeah, don't, honey, don't. You live your life. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. My Dirty Little Porn Film Festival, Hump, will be in Missoula, Montana on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday night. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get tickets. And again, we're doing Savage Love Live in Chicago, Madison, and Minneapolis this week. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events to get tickets to our live shows. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Mob Queens on Twitter at Mob Queens Pod. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.